available on Wednesdays, please let her know so that we can have enough people. Even if you're not interviewing, come hang out with the applicants, answer questions, etc. Um, and I think Max will be in charge of happy hour. So also make sure to go to happy hour. Side. So from November till January, I think, is when we're usually interviewing. So if you have nothing to do on Wednesday, now you do. <laughs> interview. <laughs> cool? All right. And Dr. Okay, is this thing on already? Yes. I don't have to it's do anything? Okay, cool. So I'm going to be talking today about this very small area of overlap between nephrology, which I take it is part of the unit that we're covering right now, and toxicology. I like it because it's a very limited uh, topic and can help focus me quite well. So I'm going to be talking about where nephrology and toxicology intersect. I'd actually prepared this for internal medicine and critical care and the nephrologist, but they haven't asked me to speak with them in many years. I wonder what that exactly means. Anyway, we're going to start off with a case example here. This is a real case that occurred at this hospital. A 26-year-old woman was brought to the ED by EMS for altered mental status. She was tachycardic, normotensive, a little bit hypothermic. She arrives with a GCS of 7, and then she gets intubated. There was this history that she had recently broke up with her husband, and she had a prior history of depression, but she was able to get it together to go to a party last night, and she used something called a speedball. Anybody have an idea what a speedball is? Yeah. Yes, and it is? Uh, Heroin and cocaine. I don't know that people were still actually still using this in the 2000s, but... That, that was the report that she had used a speedball. So obviously she comes in with a GCS of 7. That doesn't make all that much sense. So she was at the party, and her brother needed to carry her uh, to the car from the party, drove her home, and put her on the couch, and just kind of left her there. You know, She just partied a little too hardy. But she remained unconscious until 3 p.m. the following day, and that was when the family understood there might be a problem because she's not waking up. Oh yeah, and I almost forgot, before going to the party, she told her family, I drank about one cup of antifreeze. <laughs> so now, she, she looked like she was fine. They knew that antifreeze was bad for you, but she didn't look sick at all, and so they didn't really believe her, and they didn't do anything until now, putting two and two together. Oh wait, maybe speedball plus antifreeze is not so great. So here's her lab results. In the ED, she's got a potassium of 7.7. She's got acute renal insufficiency. We have no idea what her bicarb is because when it's less than 5, they don't report it. For some reason, her white count was 60,000 and her pH was 6.75. Yeah, did she do this on purpose? I know rat poison is known to prolong the high with cocaine and some patients obviously do that, but I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there are some... <sighs> pesticides that can prolong your high with cocaine. Uh, I would not necessarily categorize them specifically as rodenticides, but essentially it's the cholinesterase inhibitors uh, that do this. Uh, but no, antifreeze was not being done to, to prolong the high. She was depressed and then went out to a party. <laughs> yeah. So she has a severe metabolic acidosis. There is some respiratory compensation. If not, her pH would be even lower than 6.75. But here's a couple of questions I have for you. What's the anion gap? And what's the osmol gap? Anybody want to make some quick calculations? Fine, we're going on, because i got a lot of slides. So our anion gap is at least 27. That is what we call high. And then I did a little calculation of the osmolal gap. I'm not going over in this lecture how we derive that. But she's got an elevated osmolal gap as well. So all of this fits this being potentially severe ethylene glycol toxicity. Well, I guess I just answered that question. This is absolutely consistent with antifreeze uh, poisoning. She's got altered mental status, but that could be from something else with a severe metabolic acidosis and an osmol gap. Yes, sir? I thought it was cleared fairly rapidly. So to be like almost 24 hours later to still have an osmol gap? The, the issue was, for those of you listening at home, uh, that uh, ethylene glycol doesn't that clear pretty rapidly, just within a matter of maybe 12 hours, 18 hours, something like that. So why does she still have such a highly elevated osmolal gap? Well, there's a couple of reasons why that could be. Number one, the story could be a lie. Number two, she could have ingested a lot more than she said. Or number three, she also drank alcohol at the same party. Yeah. Okay. But she actually had no detectable ethanol level by the time she came into the emergency department. 
But that if she had alcohol on board, it definitely interfered with the clearance of the ethylene glycol. So she got treated with the IV from Mepazole. She got admitted to the MICU with a nephrology consult, had a hemodialysis catheter inserted in the ED, and then there was some pretty serious trouble moving the patient upstairs into the MICU. Uh, this actually wasn't my, uh, my patient clinically. I actually got called in as a consultant, and I thought, ooh, this is really cool, an actual sick patient that I can actually impact the care of. But she couldn't get dialysis down in the ED because the machine they wanted to use had certain hookups that they only had in the MICU. Okay, that's fine. Why isn't she in the MICU? And I had to talk with... Uh, the nursing supervisor down in the ED who says you need to talk to the house supervisor and I had to get on the phone saying this is currently the sickest patient in the hospital unless somebody is getting compressions right now. So we need to get her upstairs. So it only took about 90 minutes longer than it needed to. She got dialyzed for about seven hours and her creatinine level rose with every blood draw. Yes, she came in with some acute renal insufficiency but it just got worse. And actually she survived this and I saw her in the emergency department a couple of months later. All right, so back to the topic at hand for the less interesting non-clinical stuff. I'm going to be discussing the drugs and poisons most amenable to removal by hemodialysis. So I'm going to be listing them, I'm going to be talking about what common pharmacokinetic features they share, talking about the clinical presentation of patients poisoned by these agents, and what are the indications. Are there any numbers? Are there any things that you need to see clinically that are the indications for dialysis and other treatment modalities? So people have thought about when might hemodialysis be helpful? When you have intoxication with certain drugs where a patient fails to respond to what is otherwise full supportive care. Things like, are they hypotensive? Are they having seizures? Are they acidotic? And of course, seizures cause worse acidosis. Are they having dysrhythmias? And also, in cases where the normal route of elimination is impaired particularly if that is renal uh, elimination, you give them an artificial kidney and you're going to clear it for them. But there are some where hepatic dysfunction can decrease the clearance and if we just increase the extracorporeal clearance, that'll be great. There might be cases where you can actually measure the serum level of the drug or toxin and that by that number alone, there's high potential for morbidity or, or mortality and you want to dialyze them before they get all of these serious complications or they might have some increased risk due to concurrent diseases or their age group, or they've got some other metabolic disorders that can simultaneously be treated with hemodialysis, such as if they have hyperkalemia at the same time, or if they've got a severe lactate-associated acidosis at the same time, as will come up with metformin, as we'll see a little bit later. Now, according to a review article about this from JAMA 1982, it's generally accepted that enhanced elimination techniques are worthwhile only if total body clearance is increased by at least 30%. Well, this is a notebook that we're carrying around in the emergency department, but it's interesting that people have looked at it. So it's easier to achieve an increase in clearance of at least 30% if it's something that has a very low endogenous clearance. Okay, those numbers kind of make sense to me. Well, what sort of pharmacokinetic features would favor removal by hemodialysis? Something that has a very low volume of distribution. Okay, this is going back to second year medical school, all the classes you didn't understand about pharmacology. So it's something that stays in the vascular compartment. So the volume of distribution of body water just for reference, is about 0.6 liters per kilogram. If you've got a drug with a volume of distribution around one or less uh, liters per kilogram, it's likely to be amenable to hemodialysis. If it's water-soluble, that's a lot better. But generally, the water-soluble drugs have a very low volume of distribution. And it should have a low molecular weight because it's got to get across the dialysis membrane. Ideally, the drug or toxin ought to have low protein binding. However, there are some drugs that actually have high protein binding, but they are dialyzable because at therapeutic levels, they're just bound to protein. But at toxic levels, the protein binding is saturated, and all of the extra drug is just floating around free in the serum, and you can dialyze that off. And ideally, it will also have a single compartment pharmacokinetic model for reasons that probably nobody wants me to go over. So what are those toxins? Okay, this is it. I'm done. Here's the list. Uh, this is from this article here, Use of Hemodialysis and Hemoperfusion in Poison Patients. A nice review article came out just a couple of years ago. And Bob Hoffman and Lewis Nelson are a couple of my buddies in uh, New York City, associated with New York City Poison Control Center. Goldfarb is a nephrologist that they often write with. I have no idea who Hollybeck is. Probably a fellow. 
So this comes from that article. How many times do people actually get hemodialysis for toxic indications in the United States? Well, we have over here number of cases of hemodialysis per million calls to a poison control center, and there's a couple million uh, every year. And we see that year by year, the number of cases of hemodialysis is going up, whereas hemoperfusion, this other line, is going down. It's virtually non-existent. In fact, I don't even think that they have the capability of doing hemoperfusion in this medical center. <clears throat> Here's another table that comes from the same article looking at different year blocks. What were the things that were more commonly dialyzed? And we can see number one in all four of these time blocks up through 2005 is lithium. Then number two was ethylene glycol. And then it starts to split up a little bit, and we see some differences over time. Methanol is there on each of them, but actually appears to be relatively decreasing as time goes on, yet the absolute number of cases is increasing. So there's other things whose relative incidence is going up. So we got salicylates. That makes the top four in all of these time slots. Then we got aminophilin. What the heck is an aminophilin? <coughs> Used for asthma. Used for asthma, yeah. Aminophilin is an IV form of theophylline, which is essentially no longer used. No longer used, a lot less people are getting exposed to it, so it just kind of just falls off. On the other hand, valproic acid has made an appearance and is kind of taking its place. Now, I remember when valproic acid uh, first started becoming popular when I was uh, in medical school, so that's fairly recent. And some more... Uh, tables from a similar article showing the number of cases of lithium hemodialysis going up, ethylene glycol salicylate, acetaminophen. We're going to get to that in a while. That one's kind of weird. Ethanol, if someone is very, very, very drunk, yeah, you might dialyze it away, but they're probably very hypotensive and it makes it very difficult. And then here's theophylline just kind of disappearing off the face of the earth. So we see that there's an increase in absolute number of times that hemodialysis has been utilized year by year, or at least that we know about. There's a decrease in use of hemoperfusion, which is essentially dialyzing somebody and running the blood over activated charcoal. So stuff which is more bound to organic material, more protein bound. You can remove that way. And theophylline and barbiturates were traditionally removed by hemoperfusion, but they're much less commonly prescribed, so we're not doing hemoperfusion very much. And modern technology hemodialysis is a lot better than it used to be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, such that you can achieve extraction ratios just with dialysis almost as good as you used to get with hemoperfusion anyway. So it probably doesn't matter. So who are the major players? Lithium, ethylene glycol, salicylate, increasing numbers of cases with valproic acid and acetaminophen, which is really kind of weird. Why would we not want to dialyze acetaminophen? You can actually dialyze it really well. It's got a low volume of distribution. It's a small molecule. So why wouldn't we just go to hemodialysis? Because there's other things we can do. We can give N-acetylcysteine, which works very well. And when you compare the risks associated with giving that versus jamming somebody with a huge needle in their groin or their neck and then all of the potential complications and costs associated with dialysis, you end up saving some money and some risk by not dialyzing them. Okay, so with that epidemiology stuff out of the way, I'm going to talk some more about toxic alcohols, lithium, salicylates, valproic acid, and even less about theophylline and metformin. <clears throat> so, I didn't know that the Betty Ford Clinic served cocktails, but apparently it does. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about the toxic alcohols, methanol, and ethylene glycol. That was a picture from Portland. So, the toxic alcohols, methanol, and ethylene glycol are commonly considered together because they share many similar properties. The parent compound is intoxicating in the same kind of way that ethanol is intoxicating, and if you could keep it just like that, we wouldn't have any problem. It's relatively benign. But they get metabolized initially by alcohol dehydrogenase and then by other enzymes into metabolites that cause severe acidosis and other toxicities. And because metabolism is necessary, the toxicity can be delayed for hours, maybe even days in some cases if they drank ethanol too. 
And they have favorable characteristics for removal by hemodialysis. They're very low molecular weight, much less than 100 Daltons. And they have a low volume of distribution, which is essentially the same as body water. So these are essentially the poster children for toxic dialysis. So ethylene glycol mainly is used as automotive antifreeze, at least in the cases that we might be exposed to. It's also can be used as an industrial solvent. Well, why would anybody drink this stuff? Well, actually, it goes down really easy. It's non-irritating. If they haven't put bittering agents in it, and many states do require that, but if it doesn't have bittering agents in it, it's a little bit sweet. It's kind of like caro syrup, and it goes down easy. And then they often add to these antifreezes these colorful dyes, like fluorescein, for instance, and some other ones. And so it's spilled on the garage floor, and it's a little bit sweet, and it's pretty. So of course the kids are going to eat it. Yes, it is state-by-state state regulation. In, in California, they add bittering agents, and they taste awful. Yes, I've tried it. <laughs> so very small volumes of these toxic alcohols can be seriously toxic. Yes, sir? For, the, for those of you at home, uh, apparently Dr. Burns likes to watch TV. <laughs> Yeah, I believe that's correct, but it's state by state regulation. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But actually, if you want to kill cats, Tylenol really works very well. Okay, so I want to do a little mental experiment here. You, you just need to follow along. We have a hypothetical 70 kilo patient, and this patient has an ethylene glycol level of 50 milligrams per deciliter. How much antifreeze did they need to ingest to get to that level? Because practically anything you would read would say, this person needs to be dialyzed. So we have to make a number of assumptions about the volume of distribution, the specific gravity, assume that antifreeze is 100% ethylene glycol, which is close enough to true, and that we have instant absorption and distribution. All right. Assuming all of that, 70 kilos times 0.6 liters per kilogram is 42 liters of body water, times 50 milligrams per deciliter, and then convert the deciliters to liters, 21,000 milligrams. That is 21 grams of ethylene glycol, which is less than two tablespoons. So it's not very much at all. So here's ethylene glycol. It's got a fairly complex metabolism going to glycoaldehyde, then glycolic acid, then glyoxylic acid, and then ultimately to oxalic acid. This is not going to be on the test at the end. Essentially, you need to know that it gets metabolized first by alcohol dehydrogenase, forms oxalate, and then that will form some calcium oxalate crystals, which come into play in terms of complications. You can get hypocalcemia treatment, you give them calcium, and then also other signs like having crystal urea. <clears throat> so toxicologists love to split toxicity into different clinical phases, usually four. I don't know why. So the phase one is CNS intoxication, just like ethanol. And this lasts several hours. Then there's phase two, which is not always seen. They call it cardiopulmonary, but basically they just mean this person is sick and they're tachycardic. And then they will start developing acute renal failure. And in many cases, it will resolve after several days or weeks. And in a few people, it won't, unfortunately. And then there are some people who, after they recover from their acute severe illness, will be noted now to have cranial neuropathies. These are not always seen, and they tend to be seen only in the patients who are the sickest. And it might be related to crystal deposition in the cranial nerves when they were actually super sick. So what are the diagnostic clues to ethylene glycol toxicity? Well, a history that they took it is very helpful. Uh, chronic alcoholics who are then denied their access to alcohol want to drink anything which is alcohol-like, which will get rid of their shakes. They might 
go to the garage and find this, or a child playing in the garage with greenish fluid. If they have a severe metabolic acidosis, especially if associated with renal failure, crystal urea, hypocalcemia, and or an osmol gap. And if, they're in, if they ingested an ethylene glycol antifreeze that contains fluorescein, and most of them do, then they might have fluorescence in their mouth, something that they spilled on them, and fluorescent urine. The reliability of this, however, is unclear. In this picture from New England Journal, here's the patient's urine underneath a woods lamp, and it's glowing. And then here is some control urine. And this right here is just a reflection of the underside of the woods lamp. It is not actually fluorescence. But there's a lot of things that affect the reliability of this. If you take a vitamin supplement that contains pyridoxine, your urine will uh, glow a lot already. The type of crystals that you can get from ethylene glycol poisoning are all over the map. That being said, on the exam for emergency medicine, you're going to be shown a picture that looks like this. This is an octahedron. When you can only see it in two dimensions, it almost looks like an envelope. Methanol is also called wood alcohol, and it is found among the patients that we'll, we will see in windshield fluid antifreeze, not the radiator antifreeze. Also in sterno, those little cans of the purple stuff that goes underneath the chafing dish, that contains, that contains a lot of methanol. And then it is a contaminant of illegally produced alcohol and you will get recurrent epidemics all over the world. Every couple of years, there's a huge epidemic of dozens or hundreds of people who drank some contaminated moonshine, and they will all get sick. The latest one that occurred, I think, was about a year and a half, two years ago in India. Yeah. Eastern Europe seems to be a big place for that, too. The classic presentation is a chronic alcoholic denied his access to alcohol, but wait, there's this other thing, and it says alcohol on it, and it smells like alcohol, and it kind of tastes like alcohol. They drink it, and they develop metabolic acidosis, and will complain of blurred vision, because this, not having renal toxicity, instead has retinal toxicity. The metabolism steps are a lot simpler here. goes first to formaldehyde, and then to formic acid. The formic acid dissociates into an H plus ion, which can contributes to acidosis, and also a formate ion, which actually has a cyanide-like effect on electron transport chain, which further worsens the metabolic acidosis, and you get a lactate-associated acidosis as well. Like I said, you get retinal toxicity. Patients might complain of blurry vision or seeing snow. They're actually seeing dots that appear to be falling in front of them, or they might come in blind. GI effects are pretty common. In fact, they're more common than the GI effects with ethanol and pancreatitis can occur. All right, I've kind of alluded to the osmolal gap. Early on in ethylene glycol or methanol intoxication, the osmolal gap will be elevated. So the osmolal gap is the measured osmolality minus the calculated uh, osmolality. But there's a, a number of potential difficulties in interpreting the osmolal gap. What was it at baseline? We don't know. Exactly how high does it have to be before it causes uh, a problem? But in general, if you've got an osmolal gap of 20 or higher in an ED patient, it's almost always due to a toxic alcohol. Or it could be due to ethanol, and you forgot to add a term in the calculated osmolality for ethanol. So you always need to do that. So you, actually, you take the ethanol level and you divide it by 4.6. How do you remember 4.6? There are four six-packs in a case. <laughs> there is time dependence of the anion and osmolal gap, as was already alluded to by Dr. Schultz. So we all remember very easily, oh, toxic alcohols, you have an elevated anion gap and an elevated osmolal gap. Well, that's true if you're right in the middle. But at the beginning, it's all an osmolal gap. And then it gets metabolized away as the hours progress. And you start out with a normal anion gap, and that increases as the toxic metabolites are accumulating. So you could present very late and have a normal osmol gap, but you ought to have a high anion gap. If you don't, then it probably wasn't a toxic alcohol. <laughs> so how do you determine who needs treatment? Well, if you had a methanol level and or an ethylene glycol level, that would be easy. But these are often unavailable in a clinically useful time period. At UCI, we can get a methanol level in about four to five hours. You can't get it any faster than that. That is probably going to be uh, helpful, but 
you're probably going to want to start empiric treatment before that. And ethylene glycol levels are send-outs that take milli-years to come back. For reference, a milli-year is about eight hours. <coughs> so if you had a level, there are some references that say you need to dialyze and treat at a level of 25 milligrams per deciliter, but pretty much all of them say by 50. But patients can still be very ill with a low toxic alcohol level if they present very late in the clinical course. So you can't rely simply on the level. <clears throat> so you have to rely more on do they have signs of toxicity? If they're presenting early, do they have an elevated osmolal gap? They're usually going to have an osmolal gap, which is very high. Yes, ma'am. You can actually measure the level, but ethanol level should not interfere with that particular number. The ethanol level should not interfere with the levels that are measured of methanol or ethylene glycol. The way that they are run is sufficiently different that you should not get cross-reactivity. Whereas there are some analyses for ethanol where isopropyl alcohol will, will interfere, and so you have to use the right skin prep to do that. So if they're early presenters, it's based upon history, do you have an osmolal gap? For late presenters, do you have a metabolic acidosis or other signs that you're developing end organ toxicity, like renal injury or visual complaints, depending upon which toxin it is. Treatment outline, ABCs, enough of that. <clears throat> For most diseases that cause a metabolic acidosis, we say, you know, don't bother treating with bicarb. There actually is some evidence that for severe metabolic acidosis, especially with methanol, that treatment with bicarb actually might be beneficial. But this is based upon some pretty darn old studies. Mostly what you need to focus on are blocking further metabolism of the relatively non-toxic parent molecule into its toxic acidic metabolite by inhibiting alcohol dehydrogenase, possibly also enhancing toxin elimination by instituting hemodialysis, depending upon how sick they are. The classic treatment to induce inhibition of alcohol dehydrogenase is to competitively inhibit by giving ethanol. The goal serum ethanol level is around 100 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. So you need to give them a loading dose. And I'm going to spare you the math. It's about 0.8 grams per kilogram. So for a hypothetical 70 kilo patient, that is 560 mils of 10% ethanol given over an hour. Or if you're going to go super low tech, you send one of the clerks or the security guards to buy some vodka and you give 140 mils of 80 proof liquor. Interesting rule of thumb, it's about as much alcohol as in two-thirds of a bottle of wine. I drink half a bottle of wine and I feel plastered, so I feel kind of sorry for these people. <clears throat> we do have ethanol at the hospital. In the pharmacy for this kind of thing. Yes. The last time I checked, which was over a decade ago, they had these tiny ampules, and they would just crack open a whole bunch of them and, and mix it up for you. <laughs> so the advantages of using ethanol is that it's super inexpensive. Oh, by the way, this says Cockburn and dry sack. <laughs> the disadvantages of ethanol is that Despite the thousands of years of clinical experience that humans have had with ethanol, it's actually really hard to predict the pharmacokinetics exactly, and you're always chasing your tail. Oops, that level's a little bit too high. They got too much CNS sedation, so you turn it down. Oops, next thing you know, it's a little bit too low, and now you're not properly uh, protecting them. Now, when I was a fellow, this was a lot of fun, but uh, I would not consider it a lot of fun now. It requires very frequent monitoring essentially about every hour to make sure that the level is right. They all need to go to the ICU, and they're at risk for hypoglycemia related to the ethanol and causing a hepatitis. There is an alternative, which is using 4-methylpyrazole, which also is called fomepazole, and this is so much easier. You give a loading dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram, and then you dialyze them, and you're done. Well, if you need to repeat doses, you actually dose it every 12 hours. But if they're getting dialysis, you repeat it every four hours because it is small and it gets dialyzed away. And after a few doses, it actually induces its own metabolism and you've got to increase the dose again. But that's mostly non-ED decisions which are being made there. All you need to know is the loading dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram. 
The advantages, fomepazole does not require intensive drug level monitoring. In fact, if the patient is not acidotic, you can potentially admit him to a floor bed. Now, good luck with that, but uh, there is uh, a lot of evidence that that can be done. It doesn't cause CNS depression. Side effects are rare and usually mild if they occur at all. Disadvantage is that it's expensive. It's three to $4,000 to give them a round of therapy with this, assuming that they then get dialysis and don't need any more doses. Now, I do think that even though that's expensive, it's a relatively minor concern given the cost of admission to the ICU, labs, dialysis, et cetera, et cetera. And so there have been some pharmacoeconomic analyses of do we need to give this or ethanol. <clears throat> oh, this is just a cool picture that I got from an article from New England Journal of Medicine to give me a little break. Before I talk about, well, what are the numbers that are criteria? I want some numbers, Dr. Souchard. According to this review article that showed up just a couple of years ago in New England Journal of Medicine, if you could get a level of ethylene glycol, they recommend that you initiate therapy, not necessarily dialysis, at an ethylene glycol level of 20, or if their osm gap is 10, or if they're having complications like an acidosis with a pH of 7.3 or less. That's for ethylene glycol, virtually the identical thing they say for methanol. The numbers are almost exactly the same. <clears throat> With regard to hemodialysis for toxic alcohols, there are no validated indication criteria or validated treatment protocols that exist. But people like to do it anyway. <clears throat> Dialysis removes the parent compound, it removes the toxic metabolites, and it corrects the acidosis. It's great. It pretty much takes care of everything. And you want to dialyze until the acidosis and the osmolal gap are corrected. This often takes several hours, not per standard nephrology protocols for renal failure patients. They will often get dialysis for two hours, maybe three, but it's super rare for anything longer than that. And that's what they know. That is 98% of their practice is just doing renal failure patients. And so you have to tell them it needs to be long and you need to frequently check labs to see if it's okay to stop. Don't stop and then find out if it's okay. Uh, I will actually be getting to that towards the end. <clears throat> Here's an ad for 7-Up. Uh, I'm switching over to lithium. Uh, it actually used to be sold kind of as a medicine. See, it's for the hospital or for home use. The added citrates neutralize free acid. I thought citrate was an acid. Uh, the sugar's inverted. Oh, my God. In lots of candy, sugar's inverted. No big deal. Uh, and it says that it takes the ouch out of grouch. Basically, this was a treatment for a hangover. And it used to contain lithium. It doesn't anymore. Lithium's primary use is for bipolar disorder. And of course, this is a high risk population for overdose. This has a very slow distribution into and out of tissues. The elimination half-life is about 24 hours. It has a very small volume of distribution. And it's a very small ion. It's not even a molecule. It's not metabolized at all. And it's pretty much all filtered and then reabsorbed by the kidney. Almost all of its excretion is renal. So it is very amenable, potentially, to being dialyzed. It's got a relatively narrow therapeutic index where you want to level right around one milliequivalent per uh, liter. And very small changes in renal function can cause toxicity. <clears throat> what does acute lithium toxicity look like? Well, like most metals, you get gastrointestinal effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And the neurologic effects are more delayed because it takes a while to get into the central compartment, into your brain, where it causes tremor, fasciculations, clonus, and then at very high levels, lethargy, coma, and seizures. It also has some cardiovascular effects, mostly due to fluid depletion because of the nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But it can cause some EKG abnormalities, but I've never seen anything that was particularly specific. Chronic lithium toxicity is due to chronic low-grade overdosing, usually in patients who have some underlying renal insufficiency. And so they're getting what used to be a therapeutic dose, but it's not a therapeutic dose for them anymore. And so it really sneaks up on them. And they either never had GI symptoms, or they were so mild that nobody even noticed them. And it wasn't until they started acting really goofy in the nursing home, or really goofy on inpatient psych, that somebody said, wait, something's wrong here, and they send them to the ED. The neurologic symptoms predominate. And you can get worse toxicity at a relatively lower serum level, because the serum level is not reflecting as well how much they actually have in their central compartment. 
And then people who are taking lithium chronically and then acutely take an overdose, that just confuses it even further. How do we manage lithium toxic patients? With regard to GID contamination, charcoal is not helpful. It doesn't bind to metals. You might consider whole bowel irrigation if it was a extended release uh, lithium. There is some suggestion maybe that K-exalate could work by binding it. Maybe even Prussian blue, which can also be used for cesium toxicity. Very rarely used by anybody in clinical medicine. <clears throat> but it's really mostly saline hydration, because the saline, the sodium, and the lithium kind of compete with each other, and supportive care. So you want to hydrate them to replace any GI losses and to assure an adequate amount of sodium to enhance lithium excretion. Now, this is going to be riskier in patients who have renal insufficiency and CHF because you're going to be loading them with a lot of saline. But hopefully they're going to be young and otherwise healthy and they can handle it. Because the kidneys will preferentially reabsorb lithium over sodium if you give them the opportunity, and even very mild hyponatremia is a risk factor for chronic lithium toxicity. All right, so who do we dialyze? We've got to rely on symptoms and not on serum levels. If they've got mild neurosymptoms, you hydrate them, admit them, and observe them. If they can't tolerate hydration, you have to consider, oh, I think I might need to call the nephrologist here because it's going to take too long for this to clear. With acute ingestions of patients who are not chronically on lithium, they probably need dialysis if their lithium level is four or higher. And the earlier you can get the nephrologist to do it, the better, because it hasn't had time yet to get from the vascular compartment into their CNS. So that can be a potential argument. They're acting perfectly normal. Why do they need to be dialyzed? Because we don't want them to get abnormal and then be in the ICU for days. Uh, well, it has a half-life of about 24 hours, so it is probably not something you're going to see in the ED unless your patient is boarding in the ED. With chronic lithium toxicity or acute on chronic, they may need hemodialysis at lower levels, maybe two and a half or so. Recovery from lithium toxicity. There's a slow redistribution out of tissues, and so it's quite typical. You've got a lithium toxic patient with severe altered mental status, maybe even comatose. You dialyze them. Dialyze them for several hours, get their lithium level to zero. And 24 hours later, they wake up, and their lithium level is now about one, because it's redistrib redistributed out of the central compartment and back into the vascular compartment. You also need to closely monitor their, their electrolytes, because post-intoxication diabetes insipidus is not that rare. And you say, the sodium, which was initially 133, and you wanted it to be 140, 145, great. And well, now it's creeping up to 150, 155. It's kind of interesting. The treatment for this is to poison them with NSAIDs. So I'm going to show you some pictures from some kind of older studies done with dialyzing patients on lithium. So here they got the log concentration of lithium over here. And then they have hours. And so you see the lithium level is going down slowly, slowly. And then they dialyze. Wow, it goes way down. And then they stop, and it goes right back up. And the same thing happens again. And here's another study showing pretty much the exact same thing. Yes, you can dialyze somebody, and the lithium level will go down. But does it actually change what the shape of that curve would have been otherwise? It is not clear if it actually helps anybody get better faster. Here's a more recent case report where they said, whoa, well, we don't want to have that level come back up, so we're going to put them on hemodiafiltration after the hemodialysis. And guess what? It worked. It was probably very expensive, but it worked. And these same people did a thought experiment. Well, here's what happens to the lithium level if we do nothing. Here's if we dialyze, it bounces back up. Here's if we just do hemodiafiltration. And here's where we make the most money if we do them both. All right, now I'm going to switch to salicylates. So for our standard patient who comes in for medical clearance, no evidence of an overdose or anything, when do you recommend checking lithium levels? question is, when do I recommend checking a lithium level? I just check it on everybody who's on lithium. Okay. <laughs> Especially with a site patient and they're acting goofy, is this their baseline goofiness? It's interesting because psychiatry advised not to check it on a patient the other day after I kind of do it. That's, that's kind of interesting because they're usually the other way around. and want more medical clearance than is probably necessary. So here's an ad that contained uh, aspirin. The substitute for salicylates. 
I thought it was salicylate. Well, there, were, there are other salicylates that were worse on the stomach before aspirin came around. Aspirin's main selling point at the turn of the last century was that it was easy on the stomach. And then uh, they also sold heroin at the same time. <laughs> Excellent. So aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid, an antipyretic and anti-inflammatory that you remember irreversibly acetylates cyclooxygenase. I just tested my second year students on this. It's got multiple toxic effects. would probably never be passed uh, and approved by the FDA if it went de novo as a drug before them right now. The classic presentation of salicylate toxicity presents with metabolic acidosis, vomiting, tachycardia, and complaining of tinnitus. Notice it is not tinnitus, it is tinnitus comes from a different word. It is not an inflammation. Causes all different kinds of toxicity all over the body. Next slide. <clears throat> Just like with lithium, chronic toxicity at a given level is worse than acute toxicity. Chronic toxicity is more common in the elderly. They got concurrent disease, renal insufficiency. And so what previously was a therapeutic dose, now they're not clearing it as well and becomes a toxic dose. And the history of Overdose is not apparent because they're just taking their daily medications and they can be sicker at any given serum salicylate level because it's equilibrated through all the tissues. Problem is that severe salicylate toxicity looks a lot like sepsis with tachycardia, perhaps even hyperthermia, perhaps with non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema that you just say, oh, I think that's pneumonia. So what are the findings that should prompt consideration of hemodialysis with salicylate toxicity? And now I'm going back to the nephrology literature. Anybody who's got a markedly elevated salicylate concentration, greater than 100 is going to catch my attention with an acute overdose. With chronic toxicity, about half that, that person is a candidate for dialysis. Or if they have an elevated level, plus something, plus pulmonary edema, plus renal failure, plus severe acid-base or metabolic disturbances. <laughs> Should have said, hello, right kidney. That's good. Valproic acid is the fastest rising indication for hemodialysis and overdose situations. Valproic acid is used for a number of neuro and psychiatric disorders. You can see it's a relatively small molecule. It's an acid right here, so it's water-soluble. So yes, it is dialyzable. Now, you'd think that because it's highly protein-bound, that would be unfavorable for hemodialysis. But that's only really true with therapeutic dosing. In overdose settings, remember, you can saturate all the protein binding, and a lot more of it is free in the serum and therefore amenable to dialysis. Therapeutic levels in the 50 to 100 mics per mil range. People with significant overdoses are usually in the several hundred, maybe even up to a couple thousand range. They, they will present with CNS depression, pretty typical for anticonvulsants. They can present with abnormal LFTs. This is actually a little bit more likely with chronic therapy than from acute overdose, but it can occur from acute overdose. And hyperaminemia is quite common, even in the absence of liver injury, because of another picture that you don't need to memorize. But essentially, giving valproic acid causes a functional carnitine deficiency and then steps X, Y, Z, P, D, Q, and ultimately we have too much ammonia in the blood. Treatment is mostly supportive. You can supplement them with carnitine and that can help to get rid of the hyperaminemia. And then you can also employ extracorporeal elimination. It's not really been shown that this improves clinical outcome, but virtually nothing in toxicology has been shown to improve clinical outcome. Maybe they'll be out of the ICU a couple of days faster. Let me get this straight. You're saying someone stole one of my kidneys. Yes, you were drug prepped and operated on by professionals who run a black market in human organs. Yes, it is. That is hilarious. <laughs> Theophylin is a methylxanthine, it's 1,3-dimethylxanthine. Used to be used a lot for asthma, COPD, still occasionally for neonatal apnea, but usually they use caffeine now. Uh, it's nearly obsolete, so there's a lot fewer overdoses of this going around. It has a number of mechanisms how it works. It 
mostly the way it works is by inducing release of endogenous catecholamines, so the beta stimulation on your lungs indirectly. That's a good thing for asthma. It's an adenosine antagonist. And what you all learned in pharmacology that it's a phosphodiesterase inhibitor is mostly BS. Yes, it does, but at levels that are so toxic, you, you might be dead already. It has a lot of different types of toxicity that it can cause. And I'm not going to spend the time, but it actually looks a heck of a lot like severe salicylate toxicity in many ways, except there's a lot more tachycardia and supraventricular uh, dysrhythmias that can occur. <clears throat> How do we enhance its elimination? If the patient isn't vomiting so much and you give them multi-dose activated charcoal, been shown quite well to act as gut dialysis, sucking it into the gut and not allowing it to get out. Problem is a lot of these patients are vomiting and some of them are seizing. Charcoal hemoperfusion is the single most effective method, but you really can't find anybody that hemoperfuses anymore. Hemodialysis is still effective, a little bit less so, but our hemodialyzers are better now than in the heyday of theophylline. You would dialyze or use hemoperfusion for theophylline serum levels of greater than 90. It's about like salicylate, which was 90 to 100 if they're having severe complications like seizures, cardiovascular compromise, or have chronic toxicity, elevated levels with some complications. Theophylline and caffeine are so similar that you can just interchange one for the other in terms of the indications here. Severe caffeine toxicity should be dialyzed. In fact, you're jumping all the way ahead to my review questions. It's not just like taking towels from the hotel. I think you need to return it to the children's ward. <laughs> metformin is the most widely prescribed oral medication for type 2 diabetes, and you can get metformin-associated lactic acidosis, or MALA. I like that because it kind of sounds like Latin, like it's bad. Uh, this is a life-threatening complication that has about a 50% mortality, basically because we don't even know anybody has it until they're so sick they're in the ICU. There's an increased risk for this with renal insufficiency, and I think that diabetics might have renal insufficiency, some of them. And it can also occur with intentional or unintentional overdose, and not just related to it accumulating due to renal insufficiency. So MALA from unintentional overdose occurs mostly in patients in renal insufficiency where metformin is already contraindicated. Metformin is not metabolized, it is only renally excreted, and so you don't want to give it to somebody with renal insufficiency. So if you hemodialyze them, you can correct the acidosis, you can remove the lactate, and you can remove the metformin as well. So it's great. <clears throat> Here's the results of a study that came out of an ICU in France looking at 42 patients over 10 years. Those with intentional overdose presented earlier. They said, I took an overdose. They looked at the medicine and said, oh my god, you took metformin. And they tended to do better because they were discovered before they got super sick. The incidental overdoses are more like, this patient's really sick. They're acidotic. Wait, let's check their lactate level. And by the time anybody realized it was related to the metformin, they were much sicker and had a much lower average pH, and they had about a 50% mortality. Now, in this particular study, they dialyzed these patients against bicarbonate and found that 85% of the patient's metformin levels reached therapeutic range within 15 hours to get to your question earlier. Some of these things need to be dialyzed for a long time compared to normal dialysis for patients with renal failure. And then I had a case report that I wrote up with uh, Grotsky here. You might recognize a couple of the other faces. Fatal metformin overdose presenting with progressive hyperglycemia. In fact, I still have one of the trophies that I got from this case. This is the empty metformin bottle uh, from this guy's dad. This 29-year-old man ingested greater than 60 grams of metformin, showed up with a bicarbon 9, anion gap only 22, and we said, well, he's sick. Let's admit him to the ICU. ICU team came down and said, well, what should we do? I said, you need to dialyze him. You need to call nephrology. They said, okay. The nephrology fellow is at the bedside talking to the patient, talking to his parents about, you know, I think that we're going to need to do dialysis. Is that okay? Any codes? Right then, when the nephrology fellow is right there, uh, which was actually good because we were able to jump on it right away, but by the time he was stable enough to do dialysis, it was too late. <clears throat> I just looked for as many kidney jokes as I could find. So, 
<clears throat> I'm nearing the end. How long to dialyze? Basic answer is until you're done. Well, how do you know when you're done? When the drug or toxin is gone, or at least down to non-dangerous levels, which implies that you need to get serial measurements of the drug if it is a drug that you can actually measure the level of, like salicylate, lithium, valproic acid, or the lactate associated with metformin. With toxic alcohols, direct measurements are going to take too long, so you need to base this on the osmolal gap. Did they have an elevated one? And is it now gone? Along with the anion gap being gone. This can take much longer than typical hemodialysis used for renal failure. This is the part of the lecture that I really made the whole lecture around, so that when I talk to internal medicine and nephrology, I just pound it home. Two hours is not enough. And I just have a number of quotes here saying, two hours is not enough, two hours is not enough, two hours is not enough. <laughs> two hours is not enough. <clears throat> now, how long you need to dialyze has been most extensively evaluated for ethylene glycol and methanol, mostly based upon this guy, a Norwegian toxicologist named Dag Jacobson. <clears throat> and this is the most definitive statement I have ever found, and it's still really vague. If blood concentrations are not available, hemodialysis should be continued for at least eight hours and longer if the acidosis is not correct. And there's another study out of the nephrology literature that I'm not going to bo uh, bore you with, but they made th this uh, model that actually predicted reality pretty well and found out that they needed to dialyze patients for 8.4 plus or minus 3.2 hours. <clears throat> yeah, this wasn't as good as the other ones, I agree. Okay. I was told I needed to make three review questions. We are at the end. Is everybody ready to go? Do you need a piece of paper passed out to you? We're not doing this anymore? I wasted my time? We're doing it mentally. Okay. A 35-year-old male chronic alcoholic presents to the ED again, complaining of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and blurred vision after drinking some questionable hooch. His anion gap is 29. Serum pH is 7.25. It's not cooch. Okay. <laughs> but the osmo gap and creatinine are normal. <laughs> Which of the following is the best treatment option? Is it IV ethanol and admission to the MICU, PO ethanol and ED observation, IV fulmepazole and telemetry admission, emergent hemodialysis with inhibition of alcohol dehydrogenase, or emergent hemodialysis without inhibition of alcohol dehydrogenase because all the methanol is already gone. Well, now what do we do since nobody's actually recording anything? Do I just show hands? Does anybody want to speak? Well, afterwards. Afterwards. Oh, that's a good one. Review question two. Imagine you're the nephrology fellow. Please don't kill yourself. And you have five consults for potential emergent hemodialysis, but only four working machines. Who can you most safely ignore for the longest time? Is it the 80-year-old with CHF, chronic renal failure, altered mental status, and a salicylate level of 45? Is it the 16-year-old who ingested 16 ounces, one ounce per year, of ethylene glycol 30 minutes ago? Is it the 32-year-old comatose patient with a lithium level of 3.8? Is it the 22-year-old who seized, has SVT and hypotension after drinking five Red Bulls and downing a handful of motos while studying? Or the 45-year-old with non-insulin-dependent diabetes on metformin, a lactate higher than we can measure, and a pH of 6.9? All right, now I'll move on to question number three. You're back in the ED. Hooray! Seeing a patient where you are concerned about possible ethylene glycol poisoning, which of the following labs is least likely to be helpful to you in making a timely and appropriate disposition? Basic metabolic panel, blood gas analysis, serum ethanol level, serum osmolality, serum ethylene glycol level. And with that, I am done, and then we can stop recording and go over the answers.